We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to the 1990s with our third and final installment in our first spotlight series devoted to iconic character actors. Researching Dennis Hopper, who's so synonymous with 20th century America in the new Hollywood era of the 1970s, was a fascinating undertaking. And I think it's because it's only when you really spend time with his interviews, biographies that have been written about him, and his filmography, which is so vast, that you realize just how connected he was to a variety of different filmmaking and acting styles genres, and notable figures, ranging from James Dean to Francis Ford Coppola to David Lynch to Quentin Tarantino and many, many more. I hope you've enjoyed this series, which started out naively on my part as just one single ambitious episode, and I wound up with over 50 pieces of audio gathered over several months that I needed to cut together. I am so fortunate for the participation of my dear and brilliant friends whose thoughts you've heard across this three-part series, and I owe them all a very huge debt. Kicking off this episode with an extended appreciation of director Dennis Hopper's The Hot Spot with my pandemic movie club buddy and fellow erotic thriller devotee, Travis Woods, we bring you on a tour of Hopper's prolific and diverse 90s period in films such as Boiling Point, Red Rock West, True Romance, Speed, Waterworld, and then wrap everything up with bonus recommendations. Included in today's conversation, you will hear from the following guests in alphabetical order. Jed Ayers is the author of Packerwood and Fierce Bitches, and the man behind the terrific blog, Hard Boiled Wonderland. Duncan Birmingham, the writer-director of Who Invited Them, Blunt Talk, and Marin, he is also the author of the short story collection, The Cult in My Garage. William Boyle is a novelist of such works as Shoot the Moonlight Out, City of Margins, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, The Lonely Witness, and more. 
Elizabeth Cantwell is a poet and a teacher, as well as a writer and editor at Brightwall Dark Room, the online film journal. S.A. Cosby is a New York Times bestselling author of Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, My Darkest Prayer, and the upcoming All the Sinners Bleed. Jordan Harper is a screenwriter and producer on such shows as The Mentalist, Gotham, and Hightown, as well as the Edgar Award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun, Last King of California, and the brand new novel Everybody Knows. And Travis Woods is a film essayist and writer-editor at Brightwell Darkroom, as well as the host of the podcast Increment Vice. Travis is currently writing a book on Brian De Palma. And we are starting with Travis now. What do you think it is about his choice of material as director? Maybe the difference between him as actor and director. We're going to talk about the hot spot, but of course he he's directed other films, starting with Easy Rider, the last movie, Out of the Blue. What do you think it is about this material? And that brings us to the hot spot. Uh, what do I think about his material as a director? I think that he does not get enough credit uh, as being kind of an American archaeologist or an archaeologist of Americana via cinema. Mm-hmm. That sounds nice and pretentious. There you go. That sounds like <laughs> I'm a smart. That sounds like I'm a smart person. Uh, but you know, you look at his films. You look at um, you know, uh, obviously, Easy Rider was just the first film he directed in name. He he did direct some second unit stuff for the um, the Corman movie, The Trip. But uh, you know, you look at stuff like Easy Rider, uh, the last movie, Out of the Blue, Colors. Uh, oh, these colors, are all yes. Colors is just a. I mean, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very white look at a very. <laughs> it is. It's dated broad, by today. It's yeah. it's a very white look at race relations in the United States. <laughs> um, you know, you watch something like that, which it's about two LAPD officers. Um, um dealing uh with racial strife in los angeles and then just a couple you know a couple of years later boys in the hood comes out and totally obliterates uh colors in terms of relevance um but, but the point is is that, that his films were, were he's he kind of acts as this, this i wouldn't say a story but almost like this archaeologist of post-war americana where his films are always kind of exploring what it is to tell stories in america about America, you know, an easy writer. You have him and a character named Captain America. Um, you know, crisscrossing the country, uh, eventually, you know, uh, fatally in the deep south. Um, kind of exploring the culture and 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 being very honest about the culture and honest about America. You know, I think that there's one of the more famous moments in Easy Writer, which I think probably a lot of people, you know. You go into that movie expecting like a, a, a tribute to hippiedom and a tribute to, you know, uh, flower power in San Francisco and the Mamas and the Pampas. Uh, and yet it ends with, you know, two avatars of that generation uh, capitalistically selling out and trying to make a buck off of Coke with Captain America finally musing at the end of the film, spoilers for this very old movie, uh, before they're shot to death, you know, staring at a fire and uh, mumbling to Hopper, uh, we blew it. 
Uh, And it's a a film that really kind of autopsies the 1960s and the counterculture movement within it. And I think before even cultural historians had started declaring it dead and autopsying it, this was a film made by that movement saying that the movement itself had died. And from that moment onward, again, with stuff like the last movie, which is, I think, deeply underrated, something like Out of the Blue, which we finally are all able to watch now, which is because without print for yes. so long. Even, even something, like I said, you know, like Colors, which, you know, well-intentioned and well-acted, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. though, it may, well though it may acted. be, is, is still a very, still a very kind of well-meaning but clumsy white liberal look at race relations in 1980s uh, Los Angeles. For sure. But these are all attempts by Hopper to look at his country and Mm -hmm. look at what it is to tell stories in his country. And I do think that that brings us to something like the hotspot, which is Hopper really just all out going for it in terms of telling a story within a purely American art form or purely American genre, you know, the film noir. It might be, it might've been named by the French, but it is something that came directly from America. And I think he was very excited to make a film that is essentially the kind of movie that he would have made at the very beginning of his acting career. You know, his, what was his, uh, his first role. So he was in Rebel Without a Cause in 1955. This, I mean, obviously it was made, uh, you know, 1989, 1990, and has a lot more uh, sex and violence than would be allowed in movies in the 50s. But this is the kind of story and the kind of filmmaking you would have seen on the screen as a double feature with something like Rebel Without a Cause. And I think it's really interesting that um, he decided to tell a movie using one of the most or make a movie, excuse me, uh, using one of the most American of art forms, which is which is the film noir, and it, um, it it I know that some people are not as appreciative of the film as I am. Jen, I saw your letterbox score for it, uh, <laughs> three and a half stars for a five star film. I'm just going to say a five star film. But, um, oh, I love yeah, the is. book. I I really and there's a lot I love about the film, but. I think I would just prefer the book. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I mean, I guess. Okay. I mean, the, the film is about as direct a page for page adaptation of the book as you can get, but I'm not going to quibble with you. It's your show. <laughs> it's your show. But uh, I, I, I love that. Um, I love the hot spot because I'm a film noir guy. Um, I also like erotic thrillers and I like movies that are kind of horny and violent. And yeah. uh, the hot spot is definitely all of the above. And again, it's just for, uh, we'll keep using that pretentious phrase. Uh, I, I feel like Hopper was one of cinema's archaeologists of Americana, especially mm-hmm. post-war Amer- 20th century Americana. And it was only kind of fitting that he would eventually make a pure American film noir. And What's interesting about, well, one of the many things that is interesting about the hotspot and Hopper's direction of it is that Hopper, like Eugene, was a huge fan, huge, huge fan of the book uh, that this film is based upon, which is called yes. Hell Hath No Fury by uh, Charles Williams. And what's really interesting about this film was that uh, Orion Pictures, R.I.P., 
uh, Orion Pictures came to Hopper uh, after Colors and said, hey, we have a script we'd like you to direct. And it was a modern crime movie and it was a heist film. And it was it was based sort of on Hell Hath No Fury by Charles Williams. But it was it was a it was a, a script um, that, was, that was a brand new adaptation. And it was far more kind of heist heavy uh, than the book. And uh, the film that Hopper eventually made, it was, it was much more centralized around this bank heist that occurs in the book. And Hopper agreed to do it. Hopper gets the, the funding. He gets the cast together. He gets the crew together. Uh, they all go down to, uh, to Texas to film the thing. And what is so <laughs> amazing about this is they're all sitting around in Austin and uh, Taylor, Texas, where the, the two locations where this movie was filmed. And Three days, three fucking days. And this is, again, this is why Hopper was special. This, this unpredictability, three days before cameras were set to roll on the hot spot, uh, Hopper pulled together the cast and the crew and told them what is probably the most terrifying thing any director can say to a cast and crew and studio, which is I'm throwing the script away. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we're not going to film this script. Um, he's like, I have found that the original author of the book, Hell Hath No Fury, Charles, uh, Charles Williams, in 1961, it's a couple of years after the book was written, in 1961, Charles Williams and uh, Nona Tyson wrote and adap- adapted a version of his novel into a screenplay, uh, and it was set to star Robert Mitchum in the uh, Don Johnson role. That would have been and, amazing. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert in his review, or I don't believe he said it in his review of the spot, but he was very positive on this one. I think he said it in an interview with Dennis Hopper. Roger Ebert said he was actually glad that the Mitchum version was never made because he said if a Robert Mitchum starring version of the hot spot had been made, cinema would have had to, had to end with that film because there would have been nothing left for cinema to do. Oh wow! It would have it would have been such a perfect collusion <laughs> of star and content. It would have been too perfect. <laughs> the, 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 the cinema would have nothing left to say after oh, giving wow. Bob Bob Mitchum. I'm gonna say Bob Mitchum. I'm gonna make it sound like he's my pal. Uh, sure. Uh, the, giving Bob Mitchum this role would have been too perfect, and it mm-hmm. would have just destroyed cinema. Because where can you go <laughs> from here? And anyway, Hopper found this script and written by the original author of the book. And it was almost, as I said, it's almost a page for page adaptation of the book. There's basically a subplot where one of the characters, uh, uh, Gloria Harper played by Jennifer Connelly in the book, there's a subplot where her dog gets lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a few lines about Don Johnson's character being in the merchant Marines um, a few little things like that are, are cut out, but mm-hmm. other than that, it is it is such a strict uh, adaptation of the book. And again, what a wild ass thing for Hopper to do just to tell everyone we're changing everything. We've got the sets, we've got the locations, we've got the actors, we've got all the crew, but we're gonna have to relearn and redesign every uh, you know the shots, and you know you're gonna have to relearn your performances because this is, this is we're, we're starting from scratch here. Uh, you're, you're playing all the same characters. Everything's just going to be done a little different. And I feel like that, that, that actually that chaos that he brought to bear on this film makes the film so much better because there is a, um, there's a bizarrely, there's a bizarre 
timelessness now to this film because even though it is uh being shot and filmed in uh, 1989 for 1990 release it's going off of a 1961 script that is extremely indebted to a mid-50s novel and so everyone is talking like it's a 1950s movie for the most part profanity aside and because it's shot in a very kind of uh uh town that uh town that time forgot small texas town everything looks like it's kind of in the 1950s and indeed with the exception of a couple of cars uh and um a billy squire song that plays at a strip club there's really not anything in the film to indicate the time period that this film is set in and as such it has this kind of catch-all americana feel to it that it could be taking it could be taking place anytime between 1955 and 1990 mm-hmm. and i love that about this film and it actually um shares that quality with another 1990 film that you and i have talked about uh after dark my sweet which is also Excellent. based on a, mm-hmm. also based on a mid-50s novel also set in a, in a location of extreme rurality uh, mm-hmm. uh so that you can't really tell when the film is taken other than like looking in the background and seeing some some then modern cars you can't really tell that this that these stories aren't taking place in 1950 1960 1970 and when you're dealing with a filmmaker like Popper, who i do think you know he's an american archaeologist you know he's he's digging through americana that allows the film to do so much more and to mm-hmm. look at america with such a a broader lens while using a very american genre to do so and that's just well, fuck all the pretentious, and that's just fucking cool. And that's just cool. That's just yeah. cool, right? Like we can we can be pretentious and be like, uh, you know, talk about um, the the brilliance behind it and this and that. But you know, it's just it just makes for a fucking cool movie. And yeah. again, though, I can't think. I don't think most directors with three days before they're starting principal photography would have that madman mentality to be like oh well, fuck it let's just toss the script i don't like this modern heist script um mm-hmm. sure sure it's cool and it's neat and it's badass but like what about this great script that was written for robert mitchell what if we just shot that page for page what would happen yeah and that's what they did and i mean they obviously <laughs> they spiced it up a bit i don't believe there's a character in the mitchum script who while having sex with her says, husband yes. with a bad heart says i'm fucking you to death george uh, I would quote. not think. Yes, but, but you know he did this on Out of the Blue, though that was going to be a much more straightforward kind of like after-school special kind of thing, and then he rewrote that script kind of in the twelfth hour um, for his star a little bit. So he'd done it yeah. once before. I think it gave him the courage. Yeah. But what and what's interesting about that to me is the fact that, that Hopper was kind of an old school director in that uh how to put it, you know, he was just doing a job, you know. Yeah. Uh you know, he he would a studio would come to him with a script. Well, I mean, obviously not with something like the last movie and not some not not easy writer, but like something like with this script, for instance, you know, a studio came to him and said, We have a project, will you shoot it? Yeah. And he says yes. And he approaches it very from a very kind of workmanlike. I'm just going to shoot the pages, make my days, um, mm-hmm. and the mentality. But then it, that that's fused kind of dichotomously with this auteur mentality of 
well, why am I going to shoot this if I'm not interested? What can I do to make it more interesting for me? And, you know, in both cases, you know, the hot spot and out of the blue, it's like, well, it'd be more interesting if I told the story this way. Like, you know, you know, yeah. You know, I remember Don Johnson, he did an interview where he was talking about this situation with Hopper and, and, and ditching the original script. And, uh, even though Hopper and Johnson had a very contentious relationship on this set, uh, and Johnson was a little freaked out at having to be the lead role uh, in a film that he was having to relearn with only three days. He said it was the right decision because he's like, yeah, you know, the original script was a cool movie, in quotes. It was cool. It was self-consciously cool. This is something different. This is something interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's, some, that's also that, that thing in Hopper, that weird dichotomy where you have that old school director of uh, mentality of the studio comes to me at the project. I'm going to shoot, I'm going to shoot the, shoot the pages. I'm going to make my days. And then that auteurist thing of like, well, you know, how can I make this my movie? What, what can I do to make this movie interesting? And I think in, in this, in the case of the hotspot, Hopper was like, I want to make a movie that I would have gone to see as a teenager. You know, a hot house, a hot house noir where every woman looks like Jennifer Connelly or Virginia <laughs> Madison. And yeah. all the men look like fucking Don Johnson and William Sadler. I got to say, in terms of the leads, this is a good looking goddamn movie. It even, is. Yeah. even William Sadler, who is meant to look like this scuzzy dude eating <laughs> dead squirrels and raccoons, maybe takes a bath in the creek once once a week. Um, uh, he's all kind of nervy and raw. Still looks amazing. Uh, and, you know, you got Don Johnson. Uh, there has never been uh, a human being more tanned on screen than John Don Johnson in this film. Um, it's George uh, Hamilton, it, eat your heart out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he, he goes uh, like a step beyond uh, 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 George Hamilton. It's incredible. Uh, or what's his name? The lead of De Palma's Obsession, who's like the color of mahogany. Uh, he, he somehow uh, he he somehow pulls it off and makes it look cool, um, but uh, we've said all this without actually talking about the plot of the hot spot. Um, but uh, it's a, it's it's essentially you know same as the book. It's the story that 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 deals in so many kind of American tropes and ideas. It's the story of the um, the drifter uh, from out of town who, who comes to town with a questionable morality. Um, and he meets kind of an all-American good girl with a heart of gold, as well as a devious and kind of Machiavellian tramp. Um, there's the local business owner who's kind of a fap. Uh, there's the there's the steaming skeevy dude on the sidelines uh, who knows way more than he's letting on. Played by you know, as I said, William really Sadler. And there's there's this bank. There's this bank mm-hmm. that uh, has some lax security. And you have a lead character who is feeling like he hasn't exactly lit up the world and sees all of these elements kind of colliding and coming together in a way that will either totally destroy his life or give him a shot at having a life. And I, uh, it's, it's, it's hypnotic in how it kind of boozily juggles these very kind of cliched tropes in a, in a way that never feels like it's trying to, it's not trying to be ironic. It's not um, doing, and I'm not saying this as a slur against Pulp Fiction because I love Pulp Fiction. It's not doing the Pulp Fiction thing of let's take, let's wrench these mid-century archetypes into the 1990s. It's just telling the story uh-huh. very kind of plainly, pl- uh, plainly but visually very beautifully. Um, just telling the story very plainly in a 1950s hothouse novel, and it's just playing it straight. 
The only difference is it's showing us the sex and violence that you you only get hinted at in the book and you would only get hinted at on the screen where it made in the 50s. It's mm-hmm. it's basically Hopper going full fucking Hopper on a 1950s <laughs> story. And that just makes it a lot of fun. It's 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 a very sleazy, boozy, but also quite lovely and an impeccably crafted movie. And it's just it's 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 a it's a load of fun. Even if you give it three and a half stars. Yeah. Jen, you have to admit it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun for sure. Right. And you need somebody like Hopper behind it with that confidence and yes. Yeah. Is and, there and 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 let's say this, another thing that only Hopper would have given us is that it has a soundtrack where the band is John Lee Hooker, Miles Davis, Taj Mahal, and Jack Nietzsche. They come together to form the house band that, that does this very boozy uh, and bluesy and jazzy soundtrack for the film. It's almost kind of wryly commenting mm-hmm. on the film as it's playing. Like, you know, whenever uh, the femme fatale played by, uh, oh, what's her, uh, uh, Virginia Madsen, whenever she starts to get kind of slinky, the music will start to come in and you'll, you'll hear John Lee Hooker saying, oh my God, oh my God. Like, it's like the soundtrack is like, like, oh my God, what's she going to do? Commenting on this, on this plot as it starts to spin out of control. And uh, speaking of spinning out of control, I think what makes this a very Hopper film is if you know anyone knows anything about his private life, they know that, that Hopper was a very out of control human being. Oh yeah, uh, he did, and was maybe not the best decision maker in the world. And mm-hmm. what is fascinating about the hot spot, where you have the Don Johnson playing this grifter who comes to town, um, who goes to work at this used car lot, who's owned by this you know, clueless rich old fella whose whose wife is this Machiavellian femme fatale schemer. And then you've got Jennifer Connelly working with him at this car lot who's, uh, I, if you haven't seen the movie, I won't say what she's up to, but she's up to things. She's up to things, mm-hmm. as is William Sadler. Um, but all of these, what's interesting about the film is that every single character in the film has to make decisions throughout the film. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen a film quite like this. Every single character, every time they come to a decision point, they make the wrong decision. And it's like a series of left turns where each character keeps turning left when they should turn right. And because they're mm-hmm. all turning left, they start forming this circle. It's like they're forming their own noose for each of them and, and, and braiding this noose of bad choices around each of their necks. And it's 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 kind of I think I think that's something that probably fascinated Hopper too as, as again a famously bad decision maker in his personal life. He, he's making essentially a film that's just watching a bunch of people continually do the same, just constantly making the worst possible decision out of any out of any situation. Mm-hmm. And there's something kind of giddy and thrilling about that. I don't know what that says about me. Like I'm. I'm someone who really enjoys movies like that. Like I'm someone who finds a movie like uncut gems to be really relaxing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why but I find, I find film, maybe it's because it makes me feel better about my life. But when I watch a, a film about a, char- a character yeah. who's constantly making bad decisions, I find something kind of comforting about that. Okay. And, um, and so there's something kind of fun to watch a movie where everybody's just doing the wrong thing. And you know they're doing the wrong thing. And you can see, oh God, this is going to fuck them so, so badly. But there's, again, that's 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 the fun of these movies, especially these kind of noir plots where there's 
a femme fatale with one scheme and, you know, a drifter coming in from out of town who has another scheme. Um, yes. And e- e- even the characters who you think are like the, have the most hearts of gold in the film are actually up to something as well. And all of these schemes kind of colliding and imploding and, and, and interweaving. It's a, it's a deeply complicated film as well. And, and it's just so much fun to watch. It's so much fun. And it's ultimately, I think what Hopper wanted to do is he wanted to make a movie that was, that was just fun. And it's really hard. You have to be a real kind of scolding prude to not have fun watching uh watching the hot spot. You really have to try not to like the hot spot. Yeah, that's very true. And it's it, fun. I was gonna say one thing, one one, you know, cherry on top you gotta add, this is also one of the major films in the Margaret Bowman cinematic universe. Do you know what this is, Jen? No, I don't. Okay. There was this act this Texas actress named Margaret Bowman. Okay. And um, this film begins what is a loot trilogy of the Margaret Bowman crabby service industry professional uh, a trilogy. Um, do you remember in No Country for Old Men, the old lady that runs the hotel that it has to deal with yes. um, mm-hmm. Llewellyn Moss and Anton Chigurh giving them, she's very fussy about it. All right. Yeah. That, that lady is played by Texas actress margaret bowman and <laughs> then in the film hell or high water she plays the waitress at the restaurant where she says what don't you want i'm going to give you a steak i'm going to give you tea and you either don't want green beans or you don't want uh, uh corn on the cob um she played that role as well and in this film she mm. plays the very curmudgeonly lady at the gas station when don johnson comes to town uh, and tells him if he wants to get a real drink, he can go across the street to the strip club. It's a real hot spot. And this is going to be interesting to only me, but this is the Margaret Bowman cranky service professional trilogy's beginning. This is her first of three roles where she just plays a really crabby old lady in Texas, giving our protagonists shit while also helping them get a drink. So there you go. That's a little something special just for you, Jen. All right, the Margaret Bowman cinematic universe. I love. I can that. tell you're wowed. I can tell you're so wowed by that. I can tell you're so thrilled. <laughs> well, I love I, that I, you that had the specifics. Here. I love that you had the specifics of like what she did in each movie. I mean, you put well, a lot I, of thought she, into she, this. She, she sticks out to me. She's just this this cranky old lady that keeps popping up in these <laughs> Texas movies, actress. helping people out, but also at the same time, you know, be, being a little rough with them, being a little, yeah. she's, a bit of a, she's a bit of a sour patch. <laughs> a little um, cantankerous, yeah. She's, she is, she's a little fussy. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, joking aside, yeah, I, I cannot recommend this film enough especially nowadays and and, you know not to go on a rant uh Mm -hmm. about it but uh you know so many movies are now are so kind of sanded down and uh no pun intended with lacking of any kind of real heat uh or danger or humanity and this is a this is a film that uh, i feel like it's almost like a molotov cocktail i would love to watch <laughs> an audience full of young twenty-somethings watch this movie that was made in 1990 and see how much they would squirm because of how 
rampantly kind of vulgarly sexual this film is in a way that movies just aren't anymore very true um, yeah, like rolling down the hill and all of that. oh my yeah. god uh, <laughs> but also just there was a time when studios big studios would give big budgets to big directors and big stars to go out and make movies like this movies like films noir and thrillers erotic uh that doesn't happen anymore but it, at one time it did uh you know it's a movie like this would probably tank today and my god i don't even want to imagine what film twitter would do uh when coming in contact with it but uh there, it's just if you are looking for a, a rock gut bit of fun with your movies with your cinema uh let your old pal dennis hopper help you out and <laughs> let him let him take you to the hot spot where I swear to God, you will see a cavalcade of human beings who are just atomically attractive mm-hmm. doing the stupidest fucking things in a genre that is one of the most fun genres to watch on film, the film noir. You really, you just, we could do a two hour podcast on this. Uh, it really is just about as fun as movies get. Uh, and also having like zero socially redeeming value whatsoever, which is also part of the fun. And then, as I said, watch the hot spot and watch it often. Take it daily, like vitamins, if you have to. It's a lot of fun, and <laughs> it's a kind of it's it's it's. In, 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 in last thing I'll say about it, because my God, I must be testing your patience and that of everyone listening. It's a kind of movie that does not and will not get made anymore. It just will not. Movies like this don't get made. Studios don't spend money for their big big directors, big actors, big budgets, big plots. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's just big. Um, the, what did uh, Paul Thomas Anderson once say about Magnolia? It's too much this, too much that. It's too much fucking too. Uh, uh, the hotspot is too much fucking too. And we don't get movies like this anymore. And if you want a movie like that, you got to go back and you got to find something. You got to be an archaeologist like our pal Dennis. And you got to watch something like The Hotspot. And another great one to watch would be uh, in the Indian Runner, where much like the soundtrack of The Hotspot, it's always kind of wryly commenting and mm-hmm. slyly commenting about the goings on of the plot. Uh, so too does uh, Hopper almost kind of play like this Greek chorus of a bartender in uh, The Indian Runner, where these two brothers, a cop and a criminal, kind of have to face each other down and face the reality of their lives down in, in what is kind of a Greek tragedy of a movie. And uh, as I said, he's kind of this Greek chorus that comments on it all in a very interesting, a very Hopperian, if that can, phrase can be used, very Hopperian kind of way. Next up, Jed Ayers. I think, uh, I think Boiling Point was one that I, I said I would talk about. I think he gives a, uh, it's a movie I like more than, more than most people. And I think he's a really good uh, reason uh, to like it. I think it's probably that Red Rock West uh, came out about the same time. And I saw those and really, he really was um, key to uh, those movies working for me. And uh, I think I, I think I, you know, those are the ones where I started to realize, Oh, this is Dennis Hopper. This is a guy that, um, yeah, he's, he's pretty special. S.A. Cosby. Boiling Point was right around there. It was 1993, the heyday of Wesley Snipes, uh, Viggo Mortensen popping up and stuff all the time back then. 
So talk to me about Boiling Point and Dennis Hopper in this movie. I think I'm probably one of the few people that actually likes the movie. Besides um, Jed. It's got a, yeah. It's got a terrible score on Rotten Tomatoes, and I don't know why, because <laughs> it really, it really is sort of this hybrid. It's a 90s action thriller, and it's, you know, it takes that sort of Michael Bay sheen to the cinematography, and it has that sort of uh Tarantino-esque uh tapestry plot where threads are pulling and being wound together and pulled apart. Uh, connections are that exist behind the scenes or uh, 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 this sort of Byzantine sort of mm-hmm. plot that draws everything together. I don't know why it's got such a low score. I mean, and, and talking about Hopper, you know, Wesley Snipes is great in the, in the movie. Lolita Davinovich, De, De, I'm sorry, I might be pronouncing it wrong, is great. Mortensen is in it. You know, uh, uh, Valerie Perrine is in it. Dan Hader. You got a lot of really, Tony Lobianca, you got a lot of really good actors and actresses. Yeah. And I, for me, I think the movie is an incredibly interesting neo-noir. It really is the sort of, and sort of the, the zenith of that. It, it's an old school feeling movie, but told in that sort of 90s crime thriller way. And then, of course, Hopper as Red Diamond is just magnetic. He's terrible. He's an awful person. He's he's duplicitous. He's mm-hmm. murderous. But also, again, that sensitivity exists. He's in love with Valerie Bryan's character. He's yeah. romancing Lolita Davidovich, but not even romancing her. He just wants somebody to go dancing with him. You know, mm-hmm. he just wants somebody to go dancing with him. And so you have this man who is just awful that can't be trusted as my grandmother will say you know he just is he's so crooked you have to screw him in the ground when he died but at the same time he's this very fragile man who is a man out of time almost he he feels like he should exist in the 40s and 50s instead of the 90s so he feels like this man out of place and i don't sympathize with him as a villain he's a terrible villain but i empathize with him as a human being because hopper brings that um, to the forefront in that character even the end of the movie where he's like oh, i just can't catch a break and it's like you know as a as a moviegoer as a movie watcher you know that's intrinsically not true you you've had plenty of times to walk away from this but as a human being watching you kind of do feel for him he has that sort of that uh and i know i'm gonna sound crazy here he has sort of that willie loman thing in this movie where it's just the world has passed him by and Mm-hmm. Old school criminals aren't needed the way they were back in the day. They're not respected the way they were back in the day. There's an interesting thing about that movie. So there's a subplot in that movie of this big dance hall called the Palace that's yeah. being closed. It's it's, it's and it's it's running out of money and it's going to be closed. And I thought that was really metaphorically significant because that's Red Diamond. Like I said again, yeah. he's an old school gangster that's running out of time. And I just, I love that movie. I don't know why it's got such a low, that's one of the things where I think the critics got it wrong. That's my opinion. So Yeah. I think you brought up some really good points. The dance hall is red. There is also that element where he's talking to um, his ex who he's in love with, who he's, you know, messed over so many times in the past where, Oh, let's meet up to dance again at the end and it's kind of like when in a war movie a guy starts talking about his sweetheart back home you know it's not going to go well and but like (laughs) in the back of your mind you're like this is the bad guy but at the same time 
you don't know that you want anything truly terrible to happen because definitely not to her character, but it's like in a weird way because it's Hopper and there's that vulnerability, you kind of want him to be a little bit okay. Yeah. Yeah. One last, one other thing I'll say about that movie and you and I have talked about seventies movies, you know, my affinity for that time period. Yeah. Bullet point feels like a movie that if it had been, if it had come out in the seventies, been a huge hit. It would have been a, a huge, it would have been on the level of Serpico, Princess City, because it just has that feel. It has that sort of melancholy beating heart at the center of it, you know? We, we haven't talked about Wesley Thames' character a lot, but he's the stereotypical cop in a movie where he's estranged from his wife. He's yeah. sort of in love with Lolita Davidovich's character. Um, mm-hmm. His job is his life. Uh, you know, and not giving anything away. He loses his partner early on in the movie and that gives him purpose. And so he he has the unenviable task of acting across from Dennis Hopper in this movie. And Dennis Hopper yeah. is so magnetic, so large and alike that it sort of diminishes uh, Wesley's performance in a way. But it's also, again, like I said, that movie that if you, if you released it in the summer of 75 before Star Wars came out, it would have been a solid mid-level hit because it just has that. So, there's something about the 70s that has that same sort of melancholy heart. And I think audiences in the nineties were a little too jaded for a movie like this. And um, it's a sad, I'm, I'm sad about it because I, I love the film. I've watched it about four or five times uh, since I first saw it. And I, I always enjoy it. It's, it's always a, a good way to while away an afternoon watching this film. So, and again, Hopper's performance is remarkable. You know, he was really on a run there um in the 90s you know 80s and 90s he was just hitting it out of the park even when the movie didn't succeed you couldn't take your eyes off of him no and i love what you were pointing out if this had been released in the 70s it probably would have been a hit and you need somebody like hopper who was around in that era uh to kind of bring that to a forefront and i think uh that's exactly what he did kind of like the palace dance hall that's essentially what he's Mm -hmm. doing in the movie himself Next, Duncan Birmingham. This movie we're going to talk about, Red Rock West, is one of my favorites. And it was one that I saw immediately on video as a new release. I remember uh, Siskel and Ebert going on about it and talking about John Dahl. And I, I remember also loving the sort of combination of Hopper and Cage together. And so I think it was very cool to see him in his villainous uh, era in the 90s. That was my first big exposure beyond Hoosiers to Dennis Hopper. So talk to me about Red Rock West and your experience with it. Yeah, yeah. I was excited to come on and, and, and talk just a little bit about that, this movie. Um, you know, one thing that's so interesting is is, is this movie. It's, it's, it's so good. It's such a great 90s B movie. I tweeted about it the other day and instantly people like seem to get yes. excited. Just like get get in my comments about how much they love it. And and it's it's kind of been almost like lost to history twice. Like it has a uh uh it had a rocky road to you know barely being distributed where it was it didn't test well. Um mm-hmm. audiences didn't test audiences didn't know what to make of it in terms of it not fitting into a a, a, a genre. Um, and being a little noir, a little Western, a little crime. And it kind of got dumped on HBO, screened a bunch of times on HBO until a theater owner in San Francisco, I think, saw it and uh, at a festival and 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 programmed it. And it became a little bit, a little bit of a hit at that particular theater and then opened 
in in New York and LA and maybe a couple other theaters, but 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 kind of kind of was was not really distributed ever properly, and then now has no. Uh, I, I I watched it on Vimeo. I was really surprised. I yeah. just it was on HBO or maybe there was a Criterion. Uh, could not even rent it. Uh, yeah, get a get a hard copy on or a DVD on Netflix. Um, so yeah, Red Rock West. I think I I read that the last seduction, another John Dahl movie I like a lot. I think that one is not. Uh, uh, as 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 out there in streaming as you would think, but Red Rock West really surprised, especially with the. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Nick Cage fan, but I so he's always there's always a Nick Cage resurgence in my mind. But I, I yes. think there's a little little bit more of one uh, in the country now, so I'm I'm surprised nobody is uh, you know getting this movie out there. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a rights issue or what's going on. I know. My friend Jordan Harper, I think, had to order like an imported Blu-ray or DVD from Germany in order to get it. Um, I have like an MP4 of it. I think I might have a DVD somewhere in my stacks. Uh, I have a million stacks everywhere of movies. But yeah, it is really hard to find. I remember having it on video. I think we bought it used from the video store they used to sell the, the tapes when you were done with them and because we kept renting this movie and loving it so much but yeah it's so good i i love john Dahl's work kill me again is another fun movie mm-hmm. um i think i remember really loving last seduction back then i revisited it um kind of recently like last year and it didn't really hit quite as well as it did back then i think stuff in the movie probably doesn't play as well uh but the performances are great the writing is phenomenal the twists which is what um john Dahl and his brother rick Dahl do so well in the script for this and dennis hopper what i love about this villainous performance is it's kind of charismatic like he's a bad guy but at first he's a buddy and he he means well or you you seem to like him you know immediately who he is uh you see the the license plate there's the stuff with hitchcock i mean a little north by northwest and rear window thrown in but hopper's able to make him a guy you kind of want to hang out with totally totally yeah. it it really it's a it's a really great role for him where he gets to hit a lot of his sweet spots and you know, in the in the Dennis Hopper uh, filmography, you know this movie, his performance it's not it's not the highs of a Blue Velvet or Apocalypse Now, or even kind of the 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 sweet Hopper of uh, of True Romance. It's yeah. it's much like the movie. It's just this. It's just great, solid uh, Hopper in in a movie that's worthy of the of the performance. Um, and I do love seeing him and Nick, Nicholas Cage. And and, and Nicholas Cage's performance kind of reminds me of Hopper uh, in uh, Hopper's performance here too. In in that they're both totally solid. They have some some moments where they kind of uh, you're kind of remind, reminded of their, their more wild performances. Yeah. But, Cage is kind of doing is kind of his, doing his noir every man um and and is really solid and sympathetic and yeah like you said Hopper comes into the movie and he feels like this kind of good old boy buddy and then you realize who he is he's the Lyle from Texas that uh, yes. he's been kind of impersonating and you realize he's this this hitman and as, as a hitman he's scary but he's also uh, also a little a little vulnerable 
Um, pretty charming. He's he's played Hitman before, I think, in Backtrack, which he directed. Mm-hmm. He's the Hitman. He's kind of dressed like uh, like Frank Booth by way of Texas a little bit. So there, there's shades of other Hopper performances in here. And he's just really solid and he's a, he's a lot of fun. And I also love, uh, I love this cast. Uh, it's, it's, it's Cage, Hopper, Laura Flynn Boyle and JT Walsh. I love JT Walsh. Yeah. So great. And I, I had watched break, uh, breakdown not long ago, rewatched that. Wonderful. Um, sort of a similar character where, mm-hmm. you know, and I just love the idea of like, you know, if you're out there in the in the in the middle of nowhere and your car breaks down or you run out of gas, JT Walsh is 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 gonna be right there to like weasel his way into your life and uh and, and mess you up. So so it's great to see these four characters all going toe to toe together. And I guess I thought of this when we when we talked about Hopper. I think the the movie besides being a you know many genres it's also a little bit of a throwback in, in what a, a classic noir it is the the setup the first act is so classic so brilliant yeah in, in that way you know hopper although he's total cutting edge you know of the moment actor he is also this bridge like we talked about to old hollywood and so mm-hmm. there's there's something about that that makes him it very fitting that he's he's in this and uh, I think I've heard the movie described as a you know a western, a thriller, a film noir, a black comedy, and uh, and those are all kind of the, the, some different shades that Hopper can play. So he's he's kind of perfect uh, perfect for this and in this. Yeah, especially because as it continues on, he sort of gets more extreme, more manic. We see different shades of him. I also love um, you know Orson Welles had that line about uh, the third man being the ultimate movie star part because they talk about you for like so much of the movie. I think he said 75% of the movie they talk and then I appear. And so he said it was like the ultimate movie star part. And this, it happens earlier, but everyone keeps talking about Lyle from Dallas or you're not really sure about this hitman. And then finally we get the intro to Hopper and it's just such a good movie star entrance, like getting out of the car in an almost accident. He's introduced in a car. Nick Cage's character's introduced in a car. They're always coming back to the small town. It's wide open spaces, but it feels really claustrophobic because they keep having to circle back. It's at night. It's it's eerie. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this movie could have really gone off the rails if when mm-hmm. the car screeches in front of Nick Cage, it's not. Yes. <laughs> is Lyle uh, uh, from from Dallas. Yeah. So yeah. many great twists and turns, even having seen this movie um before i was still had forgotten and surprised all over again when nicholas cage is driving out of town and he's he, you know he's, flu- too. he's i forgot he's about playing. that yeah it's it's such a great way to keep him in town and i forgot the twist of of what 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 uh there's a there's a character that nicholas cage hits with his car who's riddled with bullets and uh i had who totally shot? forgotten where those bullets came from Yes, I completely forgot about the bullets and I forgot about who was the the trigger person. Yes, so great film. I uh, urge people to to uh check it out, uh Red Rock West. Um yeah, like I said, a classic classic noir with with hints of of black comedy. There it feels like especially because of the casting with Cage and Laura Flynn Boyle, there's just a, just like a pinch of like Lynch kind of layer. A little. Yeah. Just just slightly. Um, and also a really great, uh, really uh, great pleasure watching uh, J.T. Walsh uh, dig into another one of his uh, awesome villains. So, so yeah, Hopper kind of gets to be the the between. He, he's the the hitman, the heavy, but he's not 
there's something about it where he's not quite as dark and 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 dire. It's like the J.T. Walsh character is is really the darker character. Yeah, he gets to be a little more fun and freewheeling, um, and and it's a great uh, great dynamic between those three male leads. S.A. Cosby. But I love his performance in Red Rock West. Yes. He's only on screen for like maybe 15 minutes, but he steals that film. He's you know he he's a uh, he's all. You know, he's all jangling spurs and 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 Wild West psychosis in that in that role. I love it. William Boyle. I mean, he's just one of those magnetic actors. I mean, you know, again, I think, you know, and they start together in Red Rock West, but I feel like Cage is kind of picked up where, where Hopper left off in a lot of a lot of ways. They have that same uh, operatic weirdness and just just um just, yeah, it's been one of my favorites for, for as long as I've loved movies, I guess. From Dennis Hopper Interviews, edited by Nick Dawson, a piece by Alex Simon dated 2008. Quote, which brings us to true romance and the scene between you and Christopher Walken, which has gone down as one of the great scenes in movie history. At the time, Quentin Tarantino was unknown. Did you know upon reading the script that a completely original voice had arrived? Answer, oh yeah, that was apparent immediately. I thought it was a terrific script and terrific movie, and it just died at the box office. All the buzz came out of tape and DVD. It was strange because... I never saw it with an audience where it didn't get a standing ovation at the end, at Toronto and other places. It just didn't connect with mainstream audiences. Maybe it was the title. Who knows? It's such a great popcorn-eating movie. You know, Tony Scott is a terrific director. The day we did that scene, we did the whole interior of my trailer here at the studio in Los Angeles. First of all, you don't see speeches like this as an actor in film anymore. It was just pages and pages of this great dialogue. Tony started lighting, was going to shoot with two cameras, and was going to shoot Chris Walken first. Chris came in and saw it, and Tony approached me and said, Chris just said he didn't want to go first. Would you mind going first? I said, I don't mind going first, but you've been lighting for two and a half hours, man. Tony said he didn't mind and reversed all the lighting and went on me first. And that's how we did it. And it was just wonderful. The only improvisation in the whole thing, because Tarantino's script was so good, was the bit about the eggplant and the cantaloupe. Walken and I went out later selling the piece as a team. And someone said to us, oh, you guys are great actors. And Walken says, I don't know if we're great actors or not. But I started out as a dancer, and Hopper and I partner real well together. And I thought that was a great line, end quote. Next up, Jordan Harper. And then True Romance. What's good there is you kind of see him playing a man more in control. But, you know, you get to see him go head to head with Christopher Walken. And also there's a sweetness and kind of a world weariness in his scenes with Christian Slater. So talk to me about that one. Yeah, it's interesting because um, he is appears to be somewhat of a ne 
negligent father and that like he or at least he and Christian Slater's characters are not close. He says, like, I haven't seen you. I haven't heard from you in mm-hmm. years. And and here you are. But he takes care of them and, and gives them these things, uh, you know, and their interplay is is earnest and, and good. And, and he, there's a little bit where he tells Chris uh, Christian Slater, like, chill out, man. Like, I haven't seen Slow you. it down, man. Slow Which, it down, man. Yeah. And, like and, you got married in two days. Yeah. And that is like, that's Both like that, vin- yeah. <laughs> that vintage hopper that makes you think like, was this guy a hippie before he was a cop? Like it has that, yes. that classic, like um, that classic hopper delivery. And yet, you know, the, the centerpiece of the, and, and, and Quentin Tarantino, in Quentin Tarantino's script, it's the first scene in the movie. Uh, you know, because he wrote it out of order, like Pulp Fiction. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, and then and then Scott put it back in the uh, chronological order. There's a lot of things about it that when you watch it, you can see. Oh, this would work. So the idea is the first scene in True Romance from Quentin Tarantino's point of view was Christopher Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, and that amazing scene, which I I do want to call out that like he's a cinematic genius, does a lot of great things. You know, if if you were cataloging the things that Quentin Tarantino is going to put in a movie, there's going to be some beautiful, obscure music. There's going to be women's feet. And there's going to be a white guy who says the N-word. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Several times. Several times. And this is no exception. And it's too bad because the scene is so brilliant. And 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 it is playing on the racism of the mobsters, like the whole story that he holds the screen so well during that that monologue um and and it is knowing it is he is using the racism of the mobsters because he knows that he has to trigger his own murder here because if he yep. doesn't they will torture him they will Until learn said, things yep. so he is committing suicide by playing on christopher walken's racism I, but again tarantino has to you know get it to that place where everybody's just throwing the n-word around and uh and that's too bad but it it is a an incredible performance um you know monologues like that are not easy to tell it's basically a joke that he's telling he's telling a shaggy dog story type yeah yeah and uh and he's letting him and 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 walk in who's acting with his face so beautifully christopher yes. walking with the dyed black hair with a very expensive suit and who's never in the movie again. And yet you could, you could write a spinoff series about him. You get him yep. perfectly. Uh, and, and, you know, that is a, a scene, especially the way Tony St- Scott shoots it. That is like, it's a love letter to cinematic smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he gets to bum one of those Chesterfields. Yeah. He's smoking through the whole thing. And he, you know, he delivers this, this speech and he, you know, basically, you know, tells these mobsters that they are in fact black, and and that is mm-hmm. uh, abhorrent to them. Uh, and and as Christopher Walken walks across the room and and uh, to get the gun that he's going to use to kill Dennis Hopper, there's just this one shot, and I don't know. I'll try and articulate it because I, I was about to say I don't know what it is, but we're on a podcast, we're supposed to say what it is. Uh, where <laughs> he just he just takes a drag on his cigarette, and it's just like. <laughs> Does he know it's the last drag? It almost looks like he thinks he's getting away with it. But now that I say that, he is getting away with it. He he is getting away with what he wants, which is to be killed right away in a fit of rage from Christopher Walken's character. And he just, you know, he takes this this drag on a cigarette and it's just like a, 
ah, he like enjoys that last drag. So again, it's, it is very, you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's that character. He just wants something in that moment and it's, he's done what he's got to do and all he wants one last drag on this cigarette and then he dies. And it's so good. And like, and it really is, it's the, you know, that, that is a movie with a lot of linchpins. I rewatched that movie even before we were going to do this. I rewatched it just to, I hadn't seen it in a while. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's frankly better than I remembered it being again, maybe that rule of every movie before 2010 is getting better. Um, but I think if you were coming up with a cast, the best cast of all time, top to tails, um, pretty it's tough up there, pretty yeah. tough to beat. Uh, especially when you get down to the bottom of, of people who are barely in it at all, including Sam Jackson, James Gandolfini. Yeah. Yeah. James Gandolfini, uh, Brad, Gary Pitt. Oldman. Yeah. yeah. Brad Pitt. Um, and you know, every little Bronson Pinchot is great. Yeah. Bronson Pinchot, Michael Rappaport, um, yeah. Tom Sizemore. I mean, oh, so good. Um, <laughs> but even like there's a character named Mad Dog who, like, you know, his name Mad Dog because he's the guy who kicks in the door to the movie producer's hotel room. Uh, and they just say, you know, something like, go ahead, Mad Dog. And he has no lines of dialogue. <laughs> that guy's a great actor. Like, just everywhere you turn in that film, it's great. But if you were going to ask people to name what is the standout performance of that film, I think you're going to say it's either it's either Gary Oldman, uh, another white guy who uses the N-word uh, in that movie, or it's Dennis Hopper, I think. I just think that he holds the screen for those few minutes and, and creates something just legendary. And again, he that's just, just what Dennis Hopper did over and over again. From Dennis Hopper, interviews edited by Nick Dawson. A piece that was written by Dennis Hopper in 1994, part of an interview that he did with Quentin Tarantino, who was editing Pulp Fiction at the time. Hopper, quote, Well, I feel that right now you're one of the top five young filmmakers. You remind me a lot of Francis Ford Coppola when he was young and excited and writing and creating. It was great to act your words, man. Quentin Tarantino. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you and Chris Walken together in that scene in True Romance, that should go into a time capsule for future generations to look at. I remember after Roger typed up True Romance for me, and we knew you lived in Venice, and we knew your house, we drove by a couple of times, and we thought about, well, we were too embarrassed by the idea of knocking on the door and putting it in your hands and saying hey would you like to direct this so we talked about the idea of just like throwing it at your house dennis hopper well if you have any more of those throw them end quote next up elizabeth cantwell I mean, Dennis Hopper is he's one of those actors that is just iconic in so many ways. And I think um, I think to me, he's really Frank Booth. That's when I think of Dennis Hopper. I think of Frank Booth and one of the earliest roles that I recognized him as an actor in, you know, like, oh, that is an actor that's doing something cool. Who is that? That's Dennis Mm -hmm. Hopper. And I kind of associate him with that role. Um, And I think he's always sort of mildly unhinged in most things. I think I also do associate him with speed, actually, because of when I grew up um, and that would have been a pretty early Dennis Hopper role for me. I can't remember exactly the first time I saw it because it's one of those that kind of 
pops in and out of your viewing life, especially yeah. if you were growing up in the nineties, like, Oh, it's on TV. Oh, it's on at a friend's house. Um, I feel like I've seen bits and pieces of it here and there throughout the years. And then there's a few times that I've obviously seen it all the way through. Um, and just recently, just a few years ago, it came on TV and I remember sitting down and just watching all of it for no reason because it's speed. It's so compulsively watchable. I think it was a film I saw at least four times that year in the theater because I would go to the movies with my older brother and his friends and they were obsessed. And so it became a thing like, well, we're going back to speed. Well, I want to (laughs) go. And I remember going with some friends. And also when I saw it, we brought like our parents, like having to tell my mom, like, it's okay, you know, with the, it's cans, not a baby. And, you know, all the really stressful stuff. And like, also just how stressful it was. My mom got like a massive headache midway through. She's like, I can't take, and we hadn't even, you know, gotten (laughs) off the bus yet. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. But, you know, it's, it's great. It's like they said back in that era, die hard on a mountain, die hard on a bus. But I think in some ways it kind of was one of the best post diehards. Yeah. Well, it's basically like three set pieces, right? You've got the elevator and the bus and then the metro stuff at the end. Um, and it's just paced so well. And more importantly, you know, when I was watching it this time, I was thinking about all of the various discussion there is these days about how blockbusters are sort of this evil thing in cinema. And, oh, what if we got back to the days when we just watched adult dramas and paid money to see, you know, quiet conversations in the kitchen, um, which I support 100%. Yeah. And I think that there was a charm to the blockbusters in the 90s that we have lost, um, not completely, but Mm -hmm. we have mostly lost and it has to do with the actors it really does does. Um, I mean you've got in these movies yeah yeah, you've got Jeff Daniels Keanu Reeves Sandra Bullock Dennis Hopper they're all actors Mm -hmm. um and they are they're selling it you know um which often you don't see in a in a movie that you could pass off as silly yeah you've got Joe Morton in there Mm -hmm. too and that's kind of crazy because he's in executive decision which uh, I talked about with Elizabeth and her husband Chris offline as one of my favorites and then yeah Jeff Daniels you know the guy from like Purple Rose of Cairo and some of those films in that era and here he is in an action movie and how great is that yeah yeah even Alan Ruck uh popping in yeah Yeah. (laughs) so good I know. And Hopper is great. I would love to know the first scene where we see him by the elevator and his line, you know, don't fuck with daddy. Do we think that was in the script? Was that, you know, a little (laughs) bit of blue velvet kind of put in there? It just feels very Dennis Hopper. I agree. I actually wrote that down. I mean, how how can you not write down don't fuck with daddy? (laughs) It does feel like channeling Frank Booth a little bit. And I mean, I think what's so fun about his performance in this movie is that he is able to kind of um, moderate his performance where there's moments where he is pretty unhinged. And then there's moments where you can tell he's just keeping a lid on it, you know, and he's acting sane. And you buy that this was a man that could have been in law enforcement for many years and kind of flown under the radar. Like that line Mm -hmm. at the end where he says something like, um, you're you're only crazy if you're poor i'm eccentric (laughs) Eccentric. right like you buy that he's he Mm -hmm. could he could pass as a sort of eccentric 
weirdo, but yeah. he's also clearly um, speaking of bombs. I mean, the metaphor there is that he himself is the bomb about to go off at any moment, right? Yes. And he's so good in the that scene with Sandra Bullock, which always kind of, it's like the one thing you kind of have to, you know, put your brain on rest a little bit that she gets out and he happens to see it. It drives me yes. nuts every time, but <laughs> a little you're bit willing of a coincidence. to overlook it. Yes. But I love that he's able to walk up to her and talk to her and he kind of slides right back into that law enforcement mode of, yes, Officer Travin, yes, and, you know, get you away from harm or whatever the line is. It's just like he is able to put on that hat very easily and be Dennis Hopper, be an actor, essentially. Yeah. No, I feel like I would have probably gone with him because he does, he's very convincing, very yeah. smooth. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But it's... then he also has those weird moments. There are a couple weird moments that feel like they could have been improv, like when he's watching the football game. Yes. Um, <laughs> he has that weird oversized reaction um, <laughs> where he's like, oh, no, yes. <laughs> for no reason. Um, I and know. I love that he has that weird um, classic crazy person set up with all of the TVs everywhere. <laughs> Yes. Um, I don't really. Yeah, I know. It's like an inspector gadget thing with the big wall, essentially. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And just also the way he punches certain lines. I mean, it's very, but he sells it like, uh, you know, why are they messing with me? Like he finds so much mm -hmm. joy in getting some of those words out. And uh, yeah, I think he must have had a lot of fun doing this. And yes. you found a really cool thing on YouTube. I will link to in this post, like a behind the scenes where it showed him and Keanu Reeves, like really rolling around and doing their own stunts because Jan Bon had been a cinematographer and likes to get really up close. So like the fight scene at the end was all real. Mm -hmm. Very intense. Yeah, it was a fun little behind the scenes. Um, I mean, the quality of the YouTube video is terrible, but um, it's kind of fun to watch. And he's in character, you know, yes. like, Oh, come in this bus with me. Ha ha. <laughs> um, I also found this interview that he did with this woman. Oh, I, I don't remember her name. Um, but it was so strange because they had this back and forth where she's asking him about the stunt where the bus jumps the gap. Mm -hmm. you know? And he keeps trying to explain it to her, but saying different things every time and she doesn't understand what's happening. So he'll be like, well, the bus, you know, it takes off and you see it take <laughs> off and then it crashes. And she'll be like, but the bus crashed. And I'll be like, no, it didn't crash. You don't see it crash. And she'll say, oh, the bus didn't crash. And I'll say, well, the bus crashed. And it's just this strange <laughs> back and forth where he keeps contradicting himself about whether yeah. the bus crashed or not. Oh um, my God, that's great. But I think he had fun doing the publicity for this film too. Um, yeah. You can tell that he... I mean, he has that career where he had that weird dip, yeah. right? Where he kind mm -hmm. of fell out of favor with everybody. Mm -hmm. And so this really feels like him just ha being able to have fun and going, oh, people don't hate me anymore. I've managed to buy my way back in. Now I'm in a fun movie. I can play a, a meaty, silly action part and and have a good time. Yeah, this was around the same time period as True Romance. And mm -hmm. so it, these little smaller roles where he gets to relish uh, in the dialogue and in bringing these people to life. This is a film too. I remember it's weird to think about, but in my first intro to film class, this would have been in 97 in the sound unit. 
our instructor was going to go with Amadeus and at the last minute was like, let's go with speed, which I found <laughs> really kind of a hilarious sort of switch. And what was annoying is some of the people in the class had not seen speed yet. I mean, we saw it on a huge screen, but he was one of those AFI guys who had to stop the movie every couple seconds. To oh, sure. That. And so people were dying, you know, trying to see an action movie in its entirety, or at least the stunt scenes and have him uh, stop and explain what they were doing with the sound. And I think the sound work is really incredible. The stunts, I mean, just the practical stuff that happened behind the scenes doing this movie it wouldn't be made the same way today at all. Yeah, I thought the elevator, um, the yeah. part with the elevator sequence where they're pulling the people out, that is really so nerve wracking because you can just feel at any moment like, oh, my God, somebody's legs are going to come off. <laughs> it's going to drop know. too fast. Yeah, um, I, I got yelled at because um, I posted this like several years ago, probably like 15 years ago in an outdoor elevator here in Phoenix. It was in September, 95 degrees. I got stuck in an elevator with four um it was a total of four women including myself and one man and one of the people that was at a medical building was a pregnant woman who just had her last appointment before giving birth mm -hmm. and was you know freaking out obviously and we were kind of making jokes like am i gonna have to deliver the baby i was trying to keep everybody calm with jokes and a nurse like pride open the elevator doors heard us yelling. We we called the firemen and were like waiting, but it was taking a long time. And so the nurse pried the doors open. The man was the first one to just like step out <laughs> without even looking back and just like booked it. And That's so, hilarious. Yeah. So I might have yelled something about his future dating success and my hope for it, but I was trying to make the pregnant lady laugh and I did, but, um, but, you know, I made sure everybody got out and then I was the last person to get out. I didn't even think about speed when I was doing this. And so, you know, it was between floors and I got out and it wasn't like dropping. It was stuck. But the fireman who came yelled at me like, oh, my God, you could have been. And then I watched Speed and I'm like, oh, no, what was I doing? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, at least Dennis Hopper wasn't also waiting for you when you got off the elevator. I know. Maybe that's why the guy booked it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was just thinking another great detail about his performance here is because, you know, he has that hand with the missing thumb, yes. how he holds the phone with the opposite hand. Oh, that's um, a good point. Yeah. I really, it's a, it's a great, I mean, obviously it's a not super acting choice because he can't really hold the phone without a thumb on his other hand, but just the act of him holding that phone across his face at this awkward angle, it just yeah. kind of increases um, the bodily tension of, of what's going on in his head. It really does. Yeah, so much to that movie. And also, like, the scene where he calls Keanu Reeves after Jeff Daniels gets killed. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. I do remember being shocked that De Jeff Daniels was killed when I first yes. saw the movie. It's mm -hmm. a shocking moment. It's a hard moment to watch. I still hate that moment. Yes. The look on his face, I mean, that goes back to acting, but the look on his face when the little red alarm like goes off and he realizes mm -hmm. what's happening is so subtle and like, well, I guess this is it. Yeah. 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 Devastating. Ugh, such a good performance. Is yeah, there anything I, else? Well, though? I just wrote down so many quotes because I think 
this role brings out Dennis Hopper's ability to deliver a line memorably. Yes. Um, I mean, almost every line he speaks seems <laughs> memorable because of the way he delivers it. He has those weird moments of emphasis on certain words. Yeah. Um, he's got that accent. And I wrote, I think the two lines that we haven't talked about that I like the most are when he says, you think if you pick up all the bus driver's teeth, they'll give you another medal. Um, <laughs> and it's so like chilling and mm -hmm. and and just the complete disregard for for life there is is mm -hmm. upsetting and then of course when he says your life is empty because you spend it trying to stop the bomb from becoming um which is this really i think i actually think that statement is very interesting that he's it is. It's talking a about philosophical how, yeah no it is like he's talking about how the bomb's purpose in life is to explode and so mm -hmm. you know keanu reeves's life is empty because he's trying to stop that natural process of explosion and there is something kind of interesting about that moment um for the character too where you go what is up with this guy? Like, <laughs> who thinks like that? Yeah. And also maybe Keanu Reeves's life is a little empty. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know much about his personal life. Yeah. Yeah. Other than mm -hmm. that, he woke up alone after that party. I know. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's the most unbelievable part of the movie, actually. Yeah. That Keanu Reeves goes to the big party. He's the hero and he goes home alone. Yeah. I don't buy that for a second. No. Well, we needed him to be single enough to meet Sandra Bullock and have it go well. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and their chemistry is so great. Yeah. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jordan Harper. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Speed. I See, that's the kind of career he's had that I forgot, yeah. that he, you know, naming those movies and, and his performance in Speed. And again, you know, a villain, that is a movie where you have to love the villain. Exactly. It's such a great performance. Yes. And done mostly like he's by himself. He's, yeah, he's, he's holding the screen. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I do think, you know, you're talking about the, these broader choices that he makes that, you know, not to put it all on mumblecore, which is, that would be lazy of me, but I do think there's a generalized move towards, um, you know, thinking that, the show don't tell sometimes can be taken so literally mm -hmm. that you end up not saying anything because you're just showing a blank face. You're showing, you know, some mumbled dialogue that people aren't catching and that style. And, and there's a lot to criticize about the method and what it did to acting. But I yeah. think that that bigness and that, that, that desire to, to capture the screen uh, is really going away. And that is a huge loss to movies to lose those people trying to capture the screen. And I think, you know, and again, there's a, again, even saying it like that, you can see the, that why it always appealed to the kind of the macho bullshit of yeah. you know actors who want to be tough guys, which I don't know anything about Hopper in that regard, but like, um, but boy, it made for good movies. It really did. S.A. Cosby. Another one that I like, um, it's, it's not a great movie. Um, uh, but it's a he did a movie with Kiefer Sullivan, um, where he plays a, a, a an old hippie radical from the 60s. It's called Flashback, I believe. Okay, with Kiefer Sullivan. Okay, and and that's a comedy, supposed to be a comedy, but there's something about him in that movie where you almost feel like he's he's poking fun at his counterculture 
uh, uh, reputations, counterculture, uh, 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 you know, characters that he's played. And so I kind of enjoy that. And I'll tell you one more that I think he does great job. And, and again, this movie, I, I think, deserves a revisit or or uh, uh, a reappreciation. He is great in Waterworld as a villain. He is fabulous in Waterworld. Say what you will about the movie itself, but Dennis Hopper as a villain, as the bad guy, he delivers he delivers each line with such conviction. He never lets it slip that we're in this really big, crazy movie that's really set up, setting up a you know, a, a theme park ride. You know, he has that that line where he says, dry land is not just our destination, it's our destiny. And he he delivers it like he's delivering Shakespeare. So <laughs> I, think, uh, I, I just, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of the guy. And I think he, outside of his acting, he lived a really interesting life. Um, I think he was a really interesting character outside of Hollywood. And, uh, you know, he's someone who people wrote off, you know, and then he was able to kind of re rebuild himself on his own terms. So I think that's, uh, I really admire that as well. William Boyle. There's that, um, that documentary, The American Dreamer, which is about, I should have mentioned that when we were talking about the last movie, it's just about his, um, his year in, well, in New Mexico. He was uh, cutting the last movie, well, editing the last movie. That's worth watching. It's interesting. It's, it depends on your tolerance for kind of hopper, personality you know um, waxing philosophical yeah a lot of that kind of culty kind of kind of culty elements to it um but but it's fascinating i think and, and also another another movie where kind of feels he didn't direct it it was uh oh uh, kit carson and somebody else um but another film where music is used much in the same way that it's used in the last movie and, and of course cool. yeah I love Mad Dog Morgan. Um, I love this 90s movie, the adaptation of Jim Harrison's novel Farmer called Carried Away. Um, that was excellent. Yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to revisit that one. It was extremely well done. Yes. That's one of my favorite performances of him. And then going back of his going back to his early days, definitely um Night Tide is one of my one of my favorites. I love, love that. Uh, the American Friend, of course. Um his his Abel Ferrara, his turn in that Abel Ferrara movie, The Blackout. Um, what else? I mean, I love him in um, Jesus's Son. I mean, I think that's a, a great, oh, yeah. memorable sequence. Um, you know, I like that adaptation. It's one of my favorite books. It's, you know, I I haven't gone back to the film a ton, but one of the main things I remember about it is him. Um, of course, you know, I, the, the true romance scene is, is classic. Yes. So, um, yeah, some, 90s Hopper, true romance and speed. Yes, I mean, speed. I grew up <laughs> on all, world. That, yeah. all that stuff. It's such a, such a, again, such a wild career, especially like as you, as you kind of grow up and change as a movie lover and movie watcher. It's, you know, so I'm seeing him for the first time and a lot of that stuff. And then I'm going back and watching yeah. and the Sons of Katie Elder and, and night tide and you know whatever else um just a just incredible range and incredible filmography and uh, mm -hmm. fascinating complicated difficult figure for sure and my friend bill is definitely right but i hope this series introduced you to sides and films of dennis hopper that you may not have anticipated going in 
I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.